Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Daniel Botkin, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Biology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's the president of the Center for the Study of the Environment, the author of numerous books, including Discordant Harmonies, A New Ecology for the 21st Century, No Man's Garden, Thoreau, and A New Vision for Civilization and Nature, and the textbook, Environmental Science, Earth as a Living Planet. Dan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Dan, one of the themes in your books uh, are the metaphors that we use as humans to think about the natural world. Give us some of the history of how we look at nature and our well, place there. Well, you know, as long as people have written, they've written about nature and our place in it. Uh, I think um, we tend to think that these are modern ideas starting with the, in the 60s and 70s with Silent Spring, but actually you can find writings about this 4,000 years old. And there's been three metaphors for nature. People have always asked the question, what is nature like undisturbed by people? And then how does nature affect people? And then the third question is, how do people affect nature? And of course, you know, those come to mind to us. What is nature? Is what's wilderness and what ought to be in our terms? And what do we do? That's very current. What are we doing to the environment? And the, the problem the ancients had was that they believed the gods had made the world and therefore it must be perfect. Then they'd look around and find it wasn't perfect, so they had to explain it. And uh, so they had three great metaphors. The first was the great balance of nature. That was the idea that the gods made a perfect world and it was in this perfect balance. If something's perfect and you change it, that mean it means it has to be less than perfect. So nature had to be perfect by definition. And perfect meant it had a perfection of form and structure. It was beautiful. It was, had a lot of variety in terms of kinds of life. And it was best for all creatures, including ourselves. Uh, now then, when they looked around and found that it, nature really wasn't perfect, then they always pointed the finger at themselves, and just as we do today. They said that either we were the final cog in the wheel that was supposed to be making nature run, and we weren't doing our job, or else it was perfect without us, and everything we did screwed things up. And uh, that was the first great idea, the balance of nature. The other idea was... Mother Nature, taken very literally, nature as an organic being, we have to set ourselves back in another way of thinking. Before the scientific era, people could only explain things from what they knew, and what they knew were living things. So they really thought of nature as alive. The first person to go down into an active volcano was a Jesuit priest in the uh, Renaissance, and Instead of describing in terms of power and force and heat, he came back and talked about what fed the fires and how things opened up like flowers. He believed it was truly organic. So then we have the view of Mother Nature, and Lucretius writes about this. And so the imperfections of nature are easy to explain because you believe that Mother Nature used to be young and beautiful with a smooth skin and everything was perfect, but unfortunately we were born at a time when she was getting old, and so the mountains were her wrinkles and the volcanoes were the warts and pimples on her skin, and what was wrong was that she was getting old and infertile. You don't find that one carrying through very much, except it does reoccur today in the Gaia hypothesis in a funny way. Maybe we can talk about that later. And then with the rise of the scientific and industrial and technological age, you have the idea of nature as a machine. You know, the philosophers start talking about the metaphor between the world is like a watch, and since a watch must have a maker, then the world must have a major, maker. And they think about the world as a mechanical system with gears and wheels. And the problem with that is that it throws us back to the balance of nature idea, because you can run a clock uh, as a, in a steady state, 
in a one perfect condition. And so the mechanical metaphor also leads you to believe that nature has a perfection. And uh, so what I've written about is the unfortunate reality that nature isn't constant and therefore it doesn't have a single perfect state. It has lots of states. Why did that balance metaphor, what, what, what was so appealing about it to the ancients and why does it still, I think most people still have this image uh, of nature and balance, particularly when they think about uh, population change in, in species that, you know, it all kind of evens out. If you get too many, um, if you get too many rabbits, the foxes will, will eat them. And there's, you know, there's a certain stability that's inevitable in all these interacting species, either in a rainforest or in a some, some ecological system. And yet you argue uh, correctly, I suspect that that's very misleading uh, despite its appeal. Why is that appeal so great? And uh, why is it wrong? Well, of course, you're asking a biologist who studies ecology, and you know I don't get any higher in the animal kingdom than <laughs> moose and elephants. So you're asking a you know deep psychological and social and cultural question. So I can just speculate about it. But I think uh, first of all, it's a very heavy religious influence here. That uh, with the ancient Greeks and Romans, they to the extent that they truly believed the gods made the world, then they really believed that it had to be perfect. And then it enters the Judeo-Christian tradition, and it gets very much much caught up in the idea uh, in both those traditions that if God made the world, he had to make it perfect because he was perfect. So it, by definition, had to be perfect. And if you claimed it wasn't perfect, you could be claimed to be irreligious. But, but why is balance perfect? In other words, what I like about the, the more realistic view which which you talk about in your writings that it's not in perfect balance it's not instabil it's not stable it's dynamic it's alive it has well, a, to me that has a great appeal right but i think what you come to is you see before our modern era before the t- late 20th century when you could start to think the way you're thinking right now uh, something perfect was that it was just like a great painting it was static and they took the perfection beyond just the statement. For example, the Greeks believed that beauty lay in symmetry, and therefore the world, since it had to be perfect and statically perfect, because if something perfect can only have one state, it's very much you know platonic that there's an idealization. So they said that the height of the highest mountain must match exactly the deepest part of the ocean, because there had to be symmetry. Uh, and so they had this idea that it was symmetric spatially and symmetric in, in time. So it was, you, you couldn't allow for a dynamic. They weren't yet ready for a dynamism, because uh, machines were not their familiar idea. Uh, so I, I think there's a very strong pressure not to think, to think of it the other way. And you see this in the art, in the paintings. Uh, in ancient paintings and in our modern paintings into the Hudson River School, the 19th century school, where you see nature always painted in its static beauty. So I think it isn't so much to say balance is perfect, it's, a, it's to say perfection is there, and perfection can only be one thing, therefore it must be static there, therefore there must be a balance. That's the logic. And let's, let's go to this issue in, in real-life ecological systems. Uh, this, I, I might... I hesitate to call it this, but I think it's it's probably true. Sort of a grade school level um, ecological uh, sophistication, which is uh, that it is in balance. Now, why is that view wrong? It's wrong because all the data that we have shows that it just isn't true. I mean, that's what I've spent a career studying. So, if you look at the histories of populations, of which there are very few, actually. The few that we have, they never are constant. They're always changing, and changing by huge numbers. For example, the longest records that connected all to the abundance of animals were those collected by the Hudson's Bay Fur Trading Company. It was the furs purchased. And if you make the economic assumption that the number of people trying to get furs always exceeded the number of furs to be gotten, 
and there's a good historical reason to think that's a reasonable assumption. Then the number of furs sold to the Hudson Bay Company is an index of the abundance. And like with the lynx, some years there's hundreds of thousands, other years there's only tens of thousands, and then there'll be some years where they're only in the thousands. So it isn't just a minor variation. It's so a huge variation. So they're huge swings in population, not attributable to hunting pressure per se, but care, and because and, I think in most people's minds, you know, a certain ecosystem has a certain carrying capacity of this species or that species, but it, that is a much more dynamic and unpredictable phenomenon. Well, the other thing that we know now, and it certainly comes to mind now with all the information related to global warming about the history of climate, we know that the climate is always changing, and it's always changing at every level of time and space that you can think of, from the longest to the shortest. And since climate is one of the drivers for, for nature, for population size and ecosystems, then those things are always going to be changing. And life has been around for three and a half billion years, and has existed in an environment that has always been changing. And living things have changed the environment in very powerful ways. So with that long a history of life, three and a half billion years, that means many species, probably most species, have evolved and adapted to change. And many of them depend on change. And when we come at them with the idea that it's all in steady state, we're actually going against their needs. But I would say that even though I wish that your description of nature in balance was a sixth-grade education <laughs> course in ecology, it actually is still in the college textbooks in ecology and in environmental science, except for my own, and I'm really shocked that I keep finding it there. And it still underlies our policies and laws and our science for managing our natural resources. It's right there in fisheries, in managing uh, whales, endangered species. So this is not just a minor intellectual metaphor. It's still very, very powerful and still dominates how we look at nature. Let me try to say it a different way. I think for a lot of people, the ideal uh, is a world without human beings, and that should be the level of temperature, this pop population of whales, whatever it is that would exist without us, and that's what we should strive to recreate somehow, as if, as if those levels were static and observable. Well, the idea that nature is best without human beings, I mean, I mean with eliminating human beings, that's a, that is only a modern idea. Wilderness was not seen as a positive ver virtue until the, late, until the 20th century. It, and a world without people was not considered a desirable world. That's only in, since uh, the 1980s that that really has come to bear. No other civilization, no other culture has ever believed that. Well, I think it's still a minority view among most people, but thank God. But yeah. I think this sort of ideal that, that if we could somehow manage nature to recreate what it would be like if we weren't here is some sort of ideal in people's minds. Well, it's that has become very popular, right? The idea that wilderness is a good, but, you know, that didn't exist at all. Uh, the, uh, before the Romantic poets, wilderness was hated. Uh, wasn't beautiful, it was irregular, it was dangerous. So in the 17th century, people crossing the Alps, your, um, people from Britain writing in English, crossing the Alps, talked about it being horrible. They hated it. They didn't like it. They didn't go skiing. They didn't go hiking. They just had to cross these horrible mountains that the Greeks had told them were nature's <clears throat> mistakes. Well, it was dangerous. It was dangerous. <laughs> but then in the 18th century, with the rise of science and technology and a beginning of ability to survive that kind of environment, um, a traveler crosses the Alps and talks about a horrible joy. So it goes from being horrible to being a horrible joy. And then you get the romantic poets, and they start to talk about the grandeur and the sublimity of nature, which the, by which they mean nature powerful, dangerous, storms at sea, the rugged mountains. So they give a new name for this, 
But that's the first time in human history that wilderness has ever been thought of uh, as and powerfulness in nature has ever been thought of as desirable and beautiful. The ancient Greek, um, not the ancient, the ancient Babylonian myth of Gilgamesh, he becomes a hero because he dares to go into the deep, dark, primeval forest and cut down the trees and let light in. Nature, wilderness was only viewed as an evil place to go to. And in the 17th, 18th century, theologians who speculate about what nature is really like, that's what they, they say. They say nature is this horrible place full of screaming <clears throat> animals and uh, full of brambles and briars, and we have to cut down the brambles and plant the rose. So they saw, as did everybody, all their predecessors, that nature was something that had to be beautiful and accessible, and that wild nature was something not to desire. Well, again, very realistic at the time. Uh, it's only through civilization, as my colleague Don Boudreau likes to point out here, that, that we find nature so, so beautiful. Uh, if you don't have a down jacket, um, the Alps is a, you die, uh, or if you have some right. form of warmth. Uh, if you went into the, those dark woods uh, <laughs> un, unarmed, you, you might not come back. Um, so that it's understandable that that, that evolution has taken place. I'm more interested in this statement you made a minute ago about the state of, of say, a college textbook that still enforces this view of nature as static and in balance. Give me some examples of that, if you can, and not literally by the book, but what parts of nature are treated that way, oh, well, they and, still, and, and yeah. why? Okay. What's the appeal of it? Okay. They if still teach, for example, they still teach that populations grow according to what is called the logistic growth curve, which was invented in 1838 by a European Verholtz. And what it says is that, of course, we know populations can't grow exponentially in a finite world because they go to infinity. So the next simplest mathematical equation for growth of a population gives you a beautiful S-shaped curve that ends in a constant population. And that's, that was believed to be the way populations actually grew. And it's still in the textbooks mathematically. It is an explicit mathematical statement of the balance of nature. Now, uh, and then the same for predator and prey. There's equations, the Lotka-Volterra equations, that give you a balanced oscillation or constancy between a predator and prey. Now, um, why do ecologists seek this? Uh, I believe they are... Now, here again, I'm speculating beyond my own expertise, but my experience with them in working with scientists who I felt were honest and trying to do a good job and knew the facts contradicted what they were saying, they really are, we're all creatures of our culture and they really are, we are all heavily affected by our cultural beliefs. And so I think there's a very strong cultural desire for this. Now there's another thing that some of the earlier 20th century ecologists said that there must be a balance in nature for because without a balance, there is no way to explain it. It's inexplicable. So there's a kind of narrow rationalist approach here that, well, it has to be in balance because otherwise it's too complicated. Uh, you don't have to believe that. There was a great 20th century ecologist named Charles Elton, and he, he wrote the opposite. He said, there never has been a balance in nature, and the variations in one species affects the variation in others, and so the remarkable, the conf resulting confusion is remarkable. But I think there there has been this deep desire. I don't know if that's explaining it, but it is explicitly in the textbooks. It's also don't, isn't part of it that the math is cleaner. I mean, one of the things it it, it is in for analytical math. Uh, yeah, the kind of math if you're if you have a lot of people who are in economics listening, it's the math they'd be comfortable with too. But you know what I've and that is an appeal. If you want to use paper and pencil analytical mathematics, then this is not so messy. However, I've worked with people who are experts in what's called the mathematics of stochastic processes, and uh, their, uh, 
comfortable with dealing with risk and uncertainty. And we have lots of fields, as you, you well know, that deal with risk and uncertainty. You know, insurance companies are dealing with this all the time. And, and the stock market, of course, people, you know, betting on the stock market, they're dealing with it all the time. And so the in, mathematical analyses for this go back to random events and stochastic processes. And also uh, game theory gets involved, which arises in the Second World War with the attempt to figure out how to find uh, enemy submarines, what would be the best plan. So there are discrete uh, analytical mathematics that work for this, but they're not familiar to the people who go into these fields. I think they're not as familiar, and the elegance is of a different order. I I think there is a parallel, which I'll just mention, and we we can move on, but I think it's it may be of interest to our listeners. And There's a parallel in economics. In economics, there's a great appeal to treat economics as a form of physics, going back to your machine metaphor, that the economy can be modeled as a as a, a sort of giant engine, a giant uh, machine. And we just need to have the equations of motion the way we would in, in physics. And, and that's, to a large extent, the history of, of modern econometric models of the economy. And in the last part of the 20th century, people started wondering, and also in the earlier part as well, but certainly in the last part, wondering whether these models were were accurate or even descriptive. And there's been a bit of a rebellion and suggesting that a more organic, more dynamic model is is more accurate, and, I, and a more biological model, a more a model that's more based on an ecosystem approach, and that's certainly at the root of the Austrian school of economics, which we talk about from time to time on this show. But it, if we go back to the textbook, college level, uh, we teach equilibrium in in economics, just like I think the textbook teaches um, equilibrium in the ecological systems. Exactly. One, it's easier. Two, it leads to a lot of good exam questions. And three, it does capture some of the aspects of the dynamics in, his, in its peculiar, what are called comparative statics in economics. So we assume that something's in equilibrium and we change one thing. Now, we know, and of course, in reality, you can't change one thing. 3,000 things are changing at once, but we focus on that one thing in an analytical way, try to isolate its effect and to try to understand it. And I suspect something similar is going on in the in the ecological textbooks well, as well. Wait, what you described is has the exact parallel in ecology, except for one point, which I'll get to. But it's exactly the same. Uh, the history of the analysis and everything you said is parallel. The one difference is almost the last thing you said that economists can say. Well, we know it's not fixed, but let's consider a static state and change one thing, then we can get some insights. Now, I wish that ecologists saw ecosystems that way and the static models that way, but they tend actually to believe that the models are the reality. Uh, so I, I think that we're lagging behind the economists here, yeah. that we haven't gotten to the point where we say, okay, we know this isn't true, but we have certain utility in static models. There was a move in the 1970 by a small group of us to look at what engineering systems analysis mathematics could be uh, used, how it could be used in ecology. And it was more or less on those lines, but that never got any headway in ecology. So it's a very good parallel, and well, that's exactly where we are. I appreciate the compliment about economics. It's probably not true, but but I'll take it anyway. <laughs> okay. And I would reference an earlier uh, podcast we did on uh, Schumpeter, who really emphasized the, the non-static nature of the economy. He wrote in the middle of the 20th century and has been somewhat forgotten, but he's having a little bit of a comeback, and I do think that economics would profit from a more dynamic uh, perspective, certainly on growth theory, which we've also talked about as well. Let's, let's change gears, though. Um, I think if you view the ecological system as a machine, there is an inevitable temptation to try to run the machine. Uh, can people manage nature? Should we try? Are we, the, um, are we living, uh, is that a fool's dream? Well, uh, you know, that's a, it's a good question, and it's an important question. I think that, to put it most simply, natural ecological systems are only partially controllable. 
even internally partially controllable. Uh, so they're only going to be partially influenced by what we do. Now, uh, of course, if we believe we've had negative effects, that means we must believe we're powerful enough to affect it. And if we do believe that, then that puts an obligation on us to try to correct that. What, what do I believe personally? Yes, I believe we have had and do have important effects on nature. Uh, so even primitive peoples had very major effects on people through fire, um, on nature through fire, uh, which I write about in my book, Discord and Harmonies, that the forests of New England and the Atlantic coastal states in the United States, which appeared to be true nature, undisturbed by people, full of grand trees, meeting the classical ideas about the beauty of primeval nature, turned out to be forests that were fire-dependent and fire-driven by fires lit by American Indians. And when these were re fires were removed by the European settlements, the Europeans suppressed fires. The forests changed to things that nobody had ever seen and didn't meet the classical ideas about the great, wonderful forests. So people have had huge effects. And living things have had gigantic effects on nature. I think that this gets lost. After all, the presence of free oxygen and the low concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is a biological product. It has to do with the photosynthesis of bacteria, algae, and plants going back um, more than a billion years with the bacterial photosynthesis. So the very environment that we live in and depend on is biological. And the animals that require rapid energetics high metabolisms, and therefore an oxygenated atmosphere couldn't evolve until the bacteria had carried out enough photosynthesis to get plenty of oxygen in the atmosphere. So our existence depends on biology having affected the Earth's environment at a grand scale. So we've affected nature, and, and we can affect it deliberately if we, sh if we want to. Should we? Well, I think we have to because we have affected it and we have no choice. We're, we're, in, we're the only sentient creatures, the only technological species, and we are having big effects on nature. So, yeah, we, whether we like it or not, we're in the driver's seat. And to deny that and say, well, we should get out of the way, we can't get out of the way. We're in the way. There's too many of us. So, yeah, I believe we have to try to do things. The unfortunate thing is that we tend to act from these wrong mythologies, and so we get into more trouble than, rather than doing good. And so what mythology should we, uh, should we embrace? We, we have to get into the idea of the dynamism of nature. So uh, we, have to, we need new myths for nature and new metaphors. I gave a talk to uh, the U.S. Forest Service said, okay, we're beginning to understand as scientists who work in forests that nature changes. Uh, but we need some new metaphors. Could you give us a talk uh, and suggest some other metaphors? So I said, sure. First of all, the great, great metaphor for nature is the Missouri River. There's wonderful stories about the Missouri. If you want to think about what nature's really like, think about the Missouri River, because there are these wonderful stories about its flooding and farmers saying it's always exciting to farm the Missouri River because you never know if you're going to harvest corn or catfish. Uh, <laughs> And, and then there's the engineer who wrote, I spent a year putting a bridge over the Missouri River, and I've spent all the years since trying to keep that river under the bridge. <laughs> it's a wonderful metaphor, the wild Missouri. And uh, I suggested some others. My favorite metaphor is the moose, because moose, aside from being an amusing and one of the homeliest-looking animals, uh, depends on young forests and also tends to create young forests by eating trees and keeping them down and making, making the nature earlier in what we call succession. So we came up with a... We actually have Morph the Moose as a cartoon character that I'm promoting as our new metaphor. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is we have to have new metaphors for nature. We really have to get this deep inside us that nature is dynamic and changing. And it, it, what I've been suggesting is that this overwhelming cultural idea of a static balance affects us at so many levels that we really have to 
find some deep ways to get away from it. It isn't just a rational. Well, let, let's talk about the um, the application of those metaphors to say forest management. Um, how would the uh, a more modern metaphor, the moose or or the river, help us think about how we should treat forests compared to a, an older metaphor that's that's hampering us? Well, the classic case is dealing with fires. So, for example, uh, there's great problems with fires in the West. So, a former student of mine, <clears throat> uh, Wally Covington, teaches at uh, Flagstaff at Arizona State. And what he he's lives in an area that is ponderosa pine. Ponderosa pine are beautiful open woodlands, scattered big trees with beautiful grasslands and the lovely scent of the pines. That's if they burn at regular interval, periodic intervals, frequently enough to uh, keep the fuel loads of dead wood down. And that's the way those are naturally. With European settlement, those fires were suppressed, and so since the 1870s, what used to be beautiful open ponderosa pine has become these thickets of small stems and dead wood that create very dangerous fires, dangerous for people, and so intense they can destroy the seed-bearing trees and also destroy the soil so you lose fertility and reproductive capacity. So Wally says, we have to get those fires back into these forests. But you can't just go in and strike a match when there's all this fuel. So it becomes very labor-intensive. He has these projects where you go in and you physically remove, just with hand labor, the excess fuel, the dead wood and leaves, and you cut back the small stems and create the forest the way it was in the middle of the 19th century. And then you start lighting fires and allow the fires to burn. Uh, and an even more economic issue is the fires in Southern California. Now, Southern we're all aware, right, recently there have been huge fires this summer, very destructive. Now, those fires take place in an area, a kind of landscape called chaparral and then some kind of pine woodlands. I lived in Santa Barbara for many years, and we did work on the fire problem. Chaparral naturally burns about every 40 to 60 years. It's in this, what's called a Mediterranean climate, very long, hot, dry summer, and a cool, wet winter. The wet winter is good for vegetation growth. So you get a lot of vegetation, and it produces a lot of fuel, and then it's very likely to burn in the hot summers. So this, the plants have evolved. The, the way you win in competition, so to speak, if you're a chaparral plant, is to put out a lot of fuel Make sure there's lots of fires and your neighbors burn and you have a way of recovering. So these plants are adapted to frequent fires. Now, the approach to managing the fires in Southern California has been traditionally the Smokey the Bear approach. Suppress all fires. And what that does is create more and more fuel on the ground. When I was working on this, one day a guy who read about our work walked in my office and plunked on my desk up big pile of newspapers, the Santa Barbara News Press. Every day there had been a fire since the Second World War, and every day there was a fire. There was a map in the papers. And so we had a complete map of all the fires ever that took place in Santa Barbara from the end of the Second World War. So that was 60, between the 60 and 40 and 60-year intervals. And it turned out that in spite of arsonists trying to light fires and in spite of firemen trying to keep fires from happening, the entire hillside back of Santa Barbara had burned once in different fires in exactly the time period that it, that it would naturally. So when this stuff is ready to burn, it's going to burn. And if it isn't ready to burn, you can't make it burn. The way to manage it is to have controlled burns done very, very carefully. So I hope this is suggesting a way to do this. I, I don't know how long you want to go on with this, but then like many trees that we like, and benefit from are trees of early stages in forest growth. For example, I wrote an article called the, base, the Great Baseball Bat Crisis. Baseball bats in the United States, until very recently, were made solely of white ash. Yep. White ash only grows in early stages of ecological succession. 
So you have to have clearings in order to get white ash. But nobody plants white ash in plantations to maintain a supply of white ash for our base, Major League Baseball teams. And so actually the best woods come from northern Pennsylvania and southern, southern New York. And so there may be a problem in the long-term supply of this. And what I proposed uh, tongue-in-cheek in this is that uh, uh, for the price of a big league baseball star's salary, I had to do a little stretching of the economics here to get the land values and so forth. You could buy enough land to have plantations in which you would clear and uh, the fields often enough that you could have an indefinite sustainable su- supply of white ash. But it would be only because you cleared forests periodically, not because you left them static. Uh-huh. No, that's very cool. And uh, as a serious baseball fan, I, the future of ash is a great concern to me. Although it, there, there are technological substitutes, but still, <laughs> it's a it actually is a it's a serious problem for baseball because there are diseases of ash. And Barry Bonds, by the way, had changed things a lot because he started to use sugar maple, which is also a very hard wood. And uh, so now sugar maples become popular. But it has some limitations, and both sugar maple and ash are suffering from certain kinds of diseases that are a concern. And if you're a real baseball fan, you need to be involved in good forest management of the most modern kind. Here, here. Uh, and it's always good to know that Barry's always on the cutting edge, um, <laughs> which uh, seems to be the case. Um, uh, I, I want to turn to global warming, but b- right before I do that, I just want to give you a chance to say something about Thoreau somebody you've written a lot about and and read a lot about. And uh, does Thoreau have something to tell us uh, in the modern era? Yeah, well, see, Thoreau is very interesting here because he and John Muir are the two icons of American environmentalism yep. and of wilderness. And Thoreau actually was a would have been a great advertising man. He was very good at capturing ideas in pithy phrases. And so he said in wildness is the preservation of the world. Now, pro- and anti-environmentalists always take this quote and use it for their own purposes. And they think Thoreau meant by saying in wildness is the preservation of the world that he wanted to turn the whole world back to wilderness. The pro-environmentalist and the anti-environmentalist interpret his statement that way. But Thoreau actually wasn't like that at all. He was a very practical man. He helped invent the modern pencil. His family were pencil makers. He was a surveyor. Uh, he an inventor. He invents when he's at Walden. He invents raisin bread, much to the <laughs> consternation of the wives living nearby. And so he goes to the wilderness and doesn't particularly like it, but he likes a spiritual sense of connectedness to nature. So for him. Wildness is a state of being. Wilderness is a physical place. And he is part of the religious movement called the Transcendentalists. And Emerson is his mentor. And these people sit around in Concord and Boston and philosophize and say that you can replace the Bible with nature. Instead of reading the Bible, you can read nature. Now, Thoreau was an interesting guy. He was quite... A skeptic. He never took anybody's word at face value. So he listened, and then he went to the wilderness to see whether that was really true. And he climbs Mount Katahdin, which is one of the first people ever to do it. The Indians didn't climb it. This is the tallest mountain in Maine, uh, because the Indians didn't climb it because they thought it was uh, a religious center you shouldn't go to. And very few Europeans had climbed it. And he gets up to the top and he finds it's really just a horrible place. And he comes back from the Maine woods and he's made a number of trips there over several years. And he says, you know, I liked going to the Maine woods, but I really could never live in the wilderness. He said it's barren and a poet would pine there. He liked bad puns. And he, what he really liked was the swamp by the edge of town. He liked civilization and its products. And he liked nature, and he thought the, the mixture of the richest parts of nature, like a swamp, and the richest parts of human civilization and culture do best together. And so that's what he really liked. And he lived in Concord the later part of his life, 
taking a walk, a four-hour walk every day in the woods near home, but then he would come home and be an intellectual and an inventor. So, yeah, there's a lot to learn from him, but it's different from what he's cracked up to be. Yeah, um, I've pulled a trout out of Walden Pond. Um, I I suspect it was stocked, but um, it was a romantic moment for me, even though it was somewhat somewhat, uh, mechanical. He's very funny about all this, actually. He's a very, very interesting person. He says one day, he writes, uh, I was walking along and I saw a woodchuck, and I wanted to grab it and eat it raw, not because I was hungry, but because of the wildness in it. Now, he didn't really mean that literally, but he meant it metaphorically. And he also said that, I've read that impala, the gazelles in Africa, when you eat them, you can tell what grasses they were eating because of the aromas that come from the plants. And he said, I wish that I had that deep a contact with nature. So he saw nature as spiritually uplifting and very important, but by contact with it. And he could get that contact right near home in Concord, Massachusetts. And he couldn't, he didn't really get it that much in true wilderness. Yeah. Um, Say something about John Muir. Well, I haven't read that much John Muir, and so I don't feel that I can say very much about about him except cliches. So I, it's, it's just because I haven't gotten around <laughs> to reading what he had to say. Although he was much, he comes across much more as the more stereotypic um, believer in great wilderness and the really fascinating conflict um, in with John Muir is between him and Gifford Pinchot. If your listeners are really curious. Because um, Gifford Pinchot, under Teddy Roosevelt, becomes the first head of the then-new U.S. Forest Service and establishes the first forestry school at Yale with the idea that forest lands are valuable and should be managed for the benefit of human beings. And he and John Muir start off as being friends. And Muir goes in the other direction. He sees the forest as valuable but human actions is only interfering. And uh, this reaches a crisis in their relation over the Hetechi Dam, the proposal to build a big dam in California. And Pencho is for it, and Muir gets very upset against it. So Pencho and Muir represent these two extreme views about environment, whether people should stay out of it and leave it alone or whether we should be involved and managing as best we can for nature and for ourselves. Well, that's a nice lead into our uh, last topic, which is global warming. Uh, You recently wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal that opened with the following quote, Global warming doesn't matter except to the extent that it will affect life, ours and that of all living things on Earth. And contrary to the latest news, the evidence that global warming will have serious effects on life is thin. Most evidence suggests the contrary. Now, you wrote those words, they were published a few weeks ago. In the interim, the IPCC has come out with a new, uh, very uh, doomsday-ish set of claims that we may be on the verge of mass extinctions, even with the tiniest increase in temperature of a few degrees. Um, Defend your argument. Okay, first I want to say that I've been working on global warming since 1968, Uh, when there were only a few ecologists and a few climatologists who were concerned about it. Uh, And I developed the first functioning computer model, multi-species model of forests. And that has been used by myself and others since the 1970s to forecast possible effects of global warming on forests and on endangered species. So it's not as if I haven't thought this is an important problem. But I'm getting very concerned that the rationality has been left behind, that we've moved from an irrational disbelief in global warming to an irrational belief in it as this incredible doomsday. Now, um, what I did was get a group of scientists, about 16 of us together, in response to the original statement, the statement that a lot of species might be threatened with extinction is made first in a 2004 article in Nature by 
a man named Thomas and 16 or 17 other people. And they say that 20 to 30% of animal and plant species are likely to be threatened with extinction by the end of the century. Now, the IPCC has simply repeated that assertion and other studies using similar methods. Uh, I reviewed that paper for one of the major newspapers in the United States who asked me to read it before, you know, just before it came out. It's one of the worst scientific papers I've ever read. Without ha- I don't have time to go into it, but I've, the methods and the data are just terrible. So we got a group together in response to that, and we held a conference, and we wrote a paper that's published in the scientific journal Bioscience called Forecasting the Effects of Global Warming on Biological Diversity. And if your listeners are really interested, they should seek that paper. We'll, Briefly, put, it, we'll what, put a link up to it on the web. Yeah, they can, but... But briefly, what we said is that in the last two and a half million years, when there's been climate change now understood to be as warm and as rapidly changing as what is forecast, almost nothing went extinct. There, the exceptions are the great megafauna of northern Europe and, and North America, the ones we're, we're familiar with, the saber-toothed tiger and the hairy mammoth and some of the trees and shrubs of northwest Europe that got caught between the alpine and arctic glaciers. But elsewhere around the world, very few animals or plants went extinct. So the data tells us that extinction is not likely, and living things are highly adapted to this. Now, the, Al Gore makes a big thing about the polar bear, that it's losing its ice habitat and is going to be threatened with extinction. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has put forward that the polar bear be put on the endangered species list as a threatened species. Now, the polar bear evolved about 500,000 years ago. And there have been periods of of very great warming since then. So the and we know that we know that I assume from uh, from all the climate studies that have gone on the reconstruction of climate. Right. Yeah. So the polar bear, not listening to the climatologists today, has found ways to survive. They have persisted. That means they're very likely to persist in the future. And um, so what I'm saying is the data contradict the assertions. And without going into details, the models that the people are using to make these disastrous predictions, predictions of disaster, are steady-state models that assume a balance of nature that are very naive in their assumptions about the connections between living things and environment. Uh, and so they're wrong on many grounds. And so I really feel we're going off in the wrong direction. Now, I've written another op-ed piece, not yet published, I just wrote it this weekend, in direct response to the latest IPCC report. You know, last Saturday, the 17th of November, they came out with their, quote, final statement. And the head of the IPCC gave a press conference and listed three threats that he said would be irreversible, one of which was a repeated assertion that the 20 to 30% of species are likely to be threatened with extinction. Now, you can keep saying something over and over again, and saying it again and again doesn't make it right. Uh, it is a statement that is not sound scientifically. And so even though this is supposed to be a scientific statement, it's actually a political and ideological statement. Uh, it is an alarming thought, 20 to 30% of species extinction. But, but it is, as you point out, uh, hard to understand that statement, given that we've lived through eons of all kinds of climate change, and there's lots of species here. I guess the worry would be the other side might respond to you and say, well, we don't have good data on past extinctions. You mentioned the saber-toothed tiger and the hairy mammoth, but maybe there were lots of other species we don't have a fossil record of before or after. Maybe they've just disappeared without our knowledge. Well, two things about that. There's a book published recently with Tom Lovejoy as the primary editor on the possible effects of global warming on biological diversity. And Tom is the president of the Heinz Foundation and has been one of the leading conservationists in the United States. And that's a very solid book. And if you look at the facts in this book, 
they, that's one of the references I use. Very few things have gone extinct. Now, uh, if you say there may have been species that existed that we never knew about, um, that's not science anymore. Okay. No, I agree. Okay. <laughs> and that's what's going on. You see, another thing that I've run into when I've been giving talks about this is that people will say, well, okay, now, what about a meter rise in sea level? Or what about a 10-meter rise in sea level? Aren't you willing to say that's a problem? Well, you know, that becomes like a child's game. Can I think of a worse disaster than you can think of? Of course, 20 to 30% of the species disappearing would be very unfortunate for us and for those particular species. And so would a 10-meter rise in sea level. Of course those would be uh, undesirable and have disastrous effects. But are they plausible? Well, the one about the species is not. And you get into these the non-scientific... Level, is the sea level rise plausible? Well, that be, that's beyond my expertise. Look, I'm, I'm a biologist and ecologist who deals with land vegetation and endangered species, a little bit on marine mammals and fisheries, but uh, I think you need to get an expert on <laughs> sea conditions. However, the, there was just a report from NASA and uh, a group of major scientists just in the last week that said that the current warming of the Arctic waters is due to internal circulation phenomenon patterns that are cyclic and are seemed about to reverse and are not due to global warming. Now, this was published about a week before the new IPCC report that says that this is going to be a terrible disaster. And even the IPCC report says, well, our models are not very good at predicting what's going to happen to Arctic ice and sea level rise. But even so, let's all be frightened about it. Yeah. That's, that's what you're really getting. So these slide from science to speculation. Uh, and My worry, and I'm sure it's yours as well, is that um, that this will have a cost down the road in terms of how people view science. It's gonna, we're going to find out eventually, I suspect, whether these uh, predictions are accurate. And um, there will be a price to pay in, in lost credibility. Oh, I'm very concerned about it. I really uh, feel that. And, you know, we see so many movements in the world opposing science. We have a, a new rise of religion, both on the religious right and in Islam, all opposing science. Uh, we have less and less faith in science. We teach it in the United States more and more poorly. And now my colleagues are doing things that I think are going to do just what you said. It's going to lead to a rejection of a lot of science. So I, I'm very seriously concerned about this. Yeah. Well, on the plus side, I think um, the human curiosity and the, the brain and our, our quest for truth um, will um, eventually triumph. It's just that along the way we're going to make some, uh, uh, some bad uh, moves along the way, I fear. Right. I think an important point we don't want to leave behind is that a lot of what you're hearing about the disaster has to do with the belief in a balance of nature and a constancy of nature. For example, there was a paper published in 2006 with the lead author, Jim Hansen, one of the major people in climatology, a very good scientist who I have great respect for. But in this paper, they talked about a one or two degrees rise in temperatures being dangerous. Now, that's not a scientific term and shouldn't appear in a paper in science. And the only reason you could say it's dangerous is because you have a belief in a constancy of nature that shouldn't be changed. And so the balance of nature is really very important as an idea underlying how we're viewing global warming. We do. What kind of evidence do we have for how warm the Earth has been in the past? Well, there's this, you mean the kind of evidence? Is that, uh, and, and what, is that what you're asking and, me? And how warm? We're, we're not, been, let me let me ask it differently. Okay, these, these are not the hottest times in 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 world. No, history. no, no. And yeah, again, you know, I, I you're t asking me about climatology, and I really want to defer that. You need uh, historians of climate to talk about this. That's not my field. But yeah, it has been warmer in the past, and of course, it's been warmer at different times with different configurations of the continents, as best as people can reconstruct it. Um, and there've been periods of considerable warmth. The climatologists 
seem to me to be arguing about just how warm in the last two million years, just how warm did it really get? Because I've been reading reports that say it actually got warmer than is forecast. But then some of the climatologists I talk to say they don't believe that. So I think that the exact extent is unresolved. But I don't think saying it's the, you know a degree or two warmer now than it ever was or it was a degree or two warmer in the past, I don't think that would have mattered to the polar bears. Uh, they aren't looking for very small differences. You're looking for rather significant changes in your environment. And whatever happened, a little bit warmer than it is now or a little less warmer, the polar bears managed to survive. I think that's the key. And what should we do? Um, in, a more oh, realistic, well, we... in a more realistic viewpoint, which is the one you're, you're suggesting, that's less hysterical, less uh, sensational, less ideological, um, what should be our attitude towards climate oh, change? Okay. Of course, there's many actions we should be taking that in response to global warming, and because they're useful anyway, just I know we're going to get short on time, but what I say is think about it the same way you think about whether to buy an insurance policy. So when I moved to California... I was confronted with an earthquake land and a fire land, and I went to the geologist in, at the University of California where I was on the faculty, who was the expert on earthquakes, and I asked him whether I should buy earthquake insurance. And he said, well, the deductible is $10,000. If an earthquake does an average of $10,000 damage to all the homes in where we live or in Southern California, that'll bankrupt the insurance companies. The feds will have to come in anyway and bail everybody out. And he said the chances of it happening are very rare. And so I don't have it. On the other hand, everybody had fire insurance. The premiums were low, the deductible was low, and the chances were really high. So what you want to do is look at global warming in a risk assessment way and then ask, what's the equivalent of buying the premium? Well, most of that is actions we should take now that are beneficial anyway. Getting away from fossil fuels is very important. They're limited. The prices we see now is going up, and it's going to go up more and more. We're fighting wars that at least to some extent have to do with, with fossil fuels. So moving away from fossil fuels is very valuable, and it's valuable to global warming, and it's going to be valuable anyway. Uh, we should begin to protect habitats more of, rare, of endangered species because that's the here and now big problem, and it's going to be a big problem whether or not there is global warming. We can go down a list of things with water use. Water is becoming a water use is a problem. Period with a huge number of people in the world. Now, Americans have traditionally used about 100 gallons a day. Other cultures, other parts of the world, people get by with 10 gallons a day. Now, there you know, have been problems of long, now a longish drought in, around Atlanta in Georgia. Yeah. But the, we should be taking actions about that climate change or not because it's a, going to be a persistent problem. So there's many, many things we should be doing that will be beneficial both in reducing greenhouse gas production and in mitigating the results. And are be they're beneficial anyway. They will help deal with the probability of global warming, and we should do them. Yeah, I think, again, the issue would be one of cost, but we'll let's defer that to another conversation. Right. I, I want to focus on one issue, though, that where uh, uh, you mentioned, which is habitat protection, uh, which is a clearly an example where, where extinctions can be real. And as a closing thought, talk about how successful or unsuccessful the national park system has been at habitat and species uh, protection. I think, again, we have a lot of romance about the, um, the national park system. And um, is it justified? How, how do you think? Give, it, give us a report card. About the park system? Yeah, well, first as, of all. As, oh, a, okay. as a protector of habitat. Well, I think the first thing you want to say is that that wasn't the original purpose nor, nor the major purpose of national, national parks. National Agreed. parks were set up and to give people... Okay. And it's so, not the political so, result either, because people like to right. go visit them and see safe right. things. So, so national parks are a wonderful thing, and they're one of America's wonderful contributions to the world, because it was an American idea. So you know, national parks are great. Now, the, what I want to say in general is that the funding to protect and conserve and manage endangered species is way too little. And that's the primary problem. 
the National Parks, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA, the agencies responsible for managing our lands and habitats of threatened and endangered species, are way underfunded. So here's a case where our mouths are bigger than our actions, that we're talking about the disasters of threats to endangered species, but we're not really paying what we need to pay if we really believe that's a problem. That's the primary problem. Now, there are other, other problems. There's the problem we talked about with the wrong kind of science and the lack of data. For example, in Yellowstone National Park, there, uh, there's been a concern about the grizzly bear, which is yeah. listed as an endangered species. So there's a, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service is required to produce a recovery plan. Now, that already has a balance of nature tone, because recover to what? But in order to deal with that, you should have a population history of grizzly bears. There is no population history of grizzly bears useful enough to determine what would you should recover them to. So there's a lack of the fundamental kind of information needed to successfully manage. But it's mostly a funding and economic problem. Do we have a better idea about the wolf population in Yellowstone, an issue I'm interested in? Because my understanding is, is that we systematically uh, purge the wolf from Yellowstone for a long, long time uh, on purely, I think, um, political grounds that, that people didn't particularly want to see them. Or, and yeah. they made it a place where you could be sure to see a lot of elk, which is all pleasant and made the tourists feel good. But the political response there, the incentives weren't very um, ecologically wise. And uh, we've since tried to reintroduce the wolf. Do we have data on how that should go, could go, will go? I... You should talk to Paul Schillery uh, and other people who work in Yellowstone. But the wolves have come back and are quite active. Uh, close friends of mine have watched them hunt elk successfully and unsuccessfully. And they certainly are the wolf. The reintroduction of wolves has been a success. But the exact state of the populations in Yellowstone I, I'm not uh, familiar enough with. But as you say, it's hard to, you know, what what is a success, right? Is there some stable, you would, I, I assume you'd argue that there's no um, particular size population of wolves that we ought to be striving for and aiming at. No, you could talk about a range of wolf populations that you want, and you can do that if you know enough about them. Uh, for example, the best studied Wolf population has been at Isle Royal National Park, which is a yeah. park in Lake Superior, and that now has an almost 50-year record of the wolves and the moose that they feed on, and their primary food. And you can talk at Isle Royal, where there's enough known about the forests and the ecosystems, to say how many wolves are a reasonable number and what's a dangerously low level. So there's concern now that there's some diseases spreading, affecting the wolves. And there's only been, you know, uh, uh, tens of wolves, like 40 or 60. And you wouldn't really like that population to drop much below 20, just in terms of the probabilities of reproduction, which we know. So you can start to give a range. You'd say, you know, we don't want any less than 20, and we certainly don't want, like, 4,000 of them Mm -hmm. or 1,000. That's too many. Uh, and you can uh, the people who are working there right now and give you a much better number. It would be probably between twenty and a hundred wolves is what you would want there. So we can give ranges. We just can't give a single number. By the way, did you get a lot of hate mail for that uh, Wall Street Journal piece? You know, the surprising thing was I got a lot of emails. Enough so friends asked if they could read them. I put them in a word file. They took thirty pages, <laughs> and except for six of them, they were all very positive and. Sympathetic. Uh, I was very surprised, and so were all my friends. Uh, I got many comments uh, from faculty who were concerned about the misinformation, uh, the misuse of science, and the state of science education in general in the United States. Is there some intimidation going on, you think? Cultural intimidation that people are afraid to speak out? Oh, very much so. I think it's a kind of new McCarthyism in that there's a truth test. I keep being asked this truth test. You, I don't know how many of your listeners will remember under the McCarthy era, the question was, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And you had to answer yes or no, and, and you were only to be spoken to after if you said no. Now the question is, well, certainly you believe global warming is happening, don't you? Uh, yeah, it's very hard to speak out about it. 
uh, you're thrown into one camp or the other. There's very few belief in middle grounds, and some of the people whose careers are tied to promoting global warming have tried to cast any opposition as people who are morally corrupted and evil. Uh, So it's no longer an open discussion. And the people I know who want to have an objective, open assessment to this uh, are frightened. So it isn't a healthy situation. It's politically very oppressive, and that concerns me as well. Well, uh, thanks for your attempts to make that uh, different. My guest today has been Daniel Botkin, Professor Emeritus the University of California at Santa Barbara. Dan, thanks for being part of Econ. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.